Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures again with us as we investigate Jesus' favorite topic, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that Jesus was in the immortality business. What drives his mission and ministry and what gives him such a passion for the work that he was doing on behalf of God is the fact that he saw the destiny of human beings depending on their reception or rejection of his kingdom message. You find that described in the parable of the soils or the sower. In Matthew 13, verse 19, Jesus said, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom of God and doesn't understand it, the devil is there to snatch away the message which has been sown in his heart. And in Luke 8, 12, the parallel version adds, So that he may not believe it, and be saved. And so we find then that believing in Jesus' gospel about the kingdom is the absolutely essential condition for becoming a Christian. As George Laddis pointed out, according to Jesus, society is divided into two antithetical camps. The one camp are those who have understood and accepted and received and are practicing Jesus' message and the other camp are those who either have never heard of it or have rejected it. Jesus saw a dividing line between two types of human being, those who responded intelligently to his gospel message about the kingdom and those who either refused to believe it or had never been appraised of it, had never come in contact with it. And so the job of the preacher is to relay that gospel of the kingdom message which Jesus brought and to invite people of all nations, races, and colors to accept the message of the kingdom, because in that message of the kingdom there is found the germ of immortality, the initial seed which will finally develop into immortality when the convert reaches the resurrection at the second coming of Jesus and is transformed from a mortal human being into one who is immortal, who is going to live forever in the kingdom of God. Now, it's important that we remind ourselves often that man is not innately immortal. You are not born with the germ of immortality in you. No, you have to acquire that. And you acquire it only through receiving and understanding and carrying out the message of Jesus, uh, responding, in fact, to his gospel about the kingdom of God. The idea that man is innately immortal, that he is naturally immortal, comes from the world of pagan philosophy. It was Plato who taught that man had an immortal spark within him, a soul which could never die. The doctrine of the never-dying soul, which has unfortunately lodged itself in Christian circles, does not come from the Bible at all. It was added to the Christian faith in times after the Bible was completed. The Bible teaches that man has to acquire immortality. Paul spoke in Romans 2, verse 7, of those who patiently seek to gain immortality. God will give it to those who work for it, who work, that is, with the help of the Holy Spirit of God, not by their own unaided efforts, certainly, but a certain amount of effort is required for the obtaining of immortality in the resurrection. Well, let's see how Paul says it exactly in Romans chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. Paul speaks of God who is going to render to every man according to his deeds. 
to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, and they're going to be rewarded with the life of the age to come, mistranslated in our versions as eternal life. It's not a timeless reward that we're going to receive. It's the life of the age which will begin at the second coming of Jesus, resurrection life to be enjoyed in the future kingdom of God on the earth. So to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they're going to receive the life of the coming age. Well, seeking for glory is exactly the same as what Jesus meant when he said that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. In the Bible, glory and the future kingdom are virtually synonymous. They mean the same thing. Glory and the kingdom of God are set before the Christians as their objective. And so whether you say that we seek first the kingdom of God, as in Matthew 6:33, or whether we seek for glory and immortality, it's the same thing. And immortality is to be gained by the Christians only at the resurrection which will occur when Jesus returns. That is made absolutely clear from 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, Paul spells out the program that God has designed for us to obtain immortality. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul says this, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's to say the future kingdom of God on the earth when Jesus comes back. Flesh and blood means you as you presently are in your present constitution. You cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So don't imagine that you've already inherited the kingdom of God. That's absolutely impossible. Just touch yourself and see if you aren't still flesh and blood. You'll find then that you have not yet arrived at the kingdom of God. You've not yet arrived at immortality. You've not yet arrived at the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Paul then says that flesh and blood, that's to say, ourselves as presently constituted, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, which is what you are now, inherit the imperishable. And then in verse 51, Paul reveals a stupendous secret about God's plan for giving us immortality. Verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, that's to say, a divine secret now revealed. We shall not all sleep. That's to say, we shall not all continue in the state of death, which is to sleep in the grave unconsciously from the moment of death until the great awakening, which will be the resurrection. We shall not all sleep, Paul says, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead are going to be raised imperishable, and we are going to be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then, and I might add, and only then, in the future, will come about the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So if you want to know when it is that you can obtain immortality, you're going to have to wait until the resurrection, and that means waiting until the second coming of Jesus. It is at the second coming of Jesus that the faithful are going to be woken up from their sleep of death 
and given immortality. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul keeps talking about people being raised from the dead. The word in the Greek has to do with being woken up from the dead, because you see, Paul believed in the ancient doctrine of the sleep of the dead. Paul did not imagine that a soul separated itself from the body at the moment of death and went to be in bliss in heaven with God. No, he believed that the dead would sleep in unconsciousness until the great moment of resurrection. And that moment would come only at the future return of Jesus to raise the dead and to establish his kingdom. The scheme is really very simple if we pay attention to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. He's just been talking about how in Adam, that's to say, if you are a natural human being, just like Adam, without immortality, we're all going to die. But in Christ, Paul adds, in 1 Corinthians 15:22, all will be made alive. That's to say, all who are in Christ. I notice in passing that Paul did not say that every human being would be in Christ, but those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, will be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. That's to say, Christ has already been made alive, as we know, at his resurrection. He's the firstfruits of a greater harvest coming. And when is that greater harvest to come? Well, after that, Paul says, at an interval later than Christ's resurrection, after that, those who are Christ's, the Christians, that is, at Christ's second coming at his parousia, the technical term for the second coming, the parousia. So that tells us in absolutely plain, simple terms that the resurrection of the Christians is not going to happen until Jesus comes back and raises all the faithful of all the ages together in the first resurrection. Now, following that event, they will then take up their responsibilities as rulers of the world. Don't you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, that the saints are going to administer the world, and if the world is to come under your jurisdiction, then you ought to be able to settle your affairs not in the law courts of this world, but among yourselves. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the first two verses. And so the resurrection of the faithful at the second coming is to grant them the immortality that they've been seeking perseveringly as Paul said in Romans 2, verse 7. Now, this very simple scheme is wrecked, is perverted, if we imagine that we already have immortality. If we already have immortality, then why are we bothering to seek for it? It makes no sense. If we already have immortality, then we don't need to put on immortality in the resurrection. The fact that we must put it on at the resurrection tells us plainly that we don't yet have it. Man is mortal. He's going to die. But we do have the seed of immortality, at least, within us, if we have accepted the gospel message of the kingdom, which in Matthew 13, verse 19, is called the seed, the essential saving seed, which must find a lodging in our hearts and minds. And it's that seed with which we cooperate, which is going to produce, then, immortality in the future, at the resurrection when Jesus comes back. That, in a nutshell, is the simple scheme of salvation given us in the Bible. And so we are insisting that Jesus was indeed in the immortality business. 
Jesus went about doing good, we read in Acts chapter 10, and by doing good was meant that he was preaching a message which, if believed and received and understood by the people, would lead them to the glories of life forever in the coming kingdom of God. No wonder then that Jesus was intent on what he was doing. No wonder that Paul was driven with a passion to fulfill the ministry for which God had called him, because upon that ministry depended the future destiny of thousands and perhaps millions of human beings. That's why then the Bible is such a critically important book for all of us. We are all surely interested in our own destiny, whether we're going to die after 70 or 80 or 90 years, or whether we're going to live forever in the future kingdom as co-regents with Jesus in the messianic kingdom of the future. So in summary, what we're saying is this, that you meet Jesus by meeting his word, his message, his gospel of the kingdom. It is your acceptance of the message of Jesus which provides the passport and access to the future kingdom of God. The kingdom message of Jesus is, so to speak, the open sesame for gaining access to Jesus and to the life of the age to come and immortality in the resurrection. There's a narrow way that leads to life, and that narrow way to Jesus and to life is via the message of the kingdom, the gospel as Jesus preached it. We have a booklet entitled, What Happens When You Die? We'd like to send one of these to you. And also a book on the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. Request these by using the telephone number to be given at the end of this program. Meanwhile, join us again as we continue our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.